This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, indeed. My mic is giving me some difficulty here. <laughs> oh, Lord. It's been that way all week, folks. Bloody hell. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, 2006. And it's uh, Talk Like a Pirate Day. Right. Talk Like a Pirate Day. I kid you not. I heard it on the radio this morning, you know. They have all these special things for each day, but Talk Like a Pirate Day is very discouraging because I don't know how. I'm going to work on it next year at this time. I'm going to talk like a pirate. My personal favorite pirate is Pirate Jenny in the Three Penny Opera. Well, maybe Kevin Klein in Pirates of Penzance uh, with Linda Ronstadt. That's been on the... Uh, cable. Never mind. Stick to Pirate Jenny in the Three Penny Opera. That's Kurt Vile's music and the Bertolt Brecht script, of course. It's what I use to um, uh, intro my uh, show here, uh, my theme song. Now, Pirate Jenny is a, a fantasy song sung by the character of Jenny Diver, originally played by the divine Lottie Lenya. I guess I I guess I listened to that uh oh every day throughout most of the 1950s uh I read that the biggest inspiration for Bob Dylan's songwriting was Kurt Vile's Pirate Jenny Now this just just rings all my bells I remember back in the uh 60s, trying to teach Bob Dylan's poetry and song in classrooms, and I was substitute teaching at the time out in suburbia, and I got into all kinds of difficulty. I really felt we needed the sound, the music, see, so I would play it, but the the uh, vice principal would come in and make a scene, so mostly I had to do it on the page in print, which sort of works, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I do remember, what is it, it struck me then that there had been a sea change. It wasn't until, oh, 20, 25 years later that one or two Bob Dylan songs appeared in the freshman anthologies at Cal, you know. It took a long time for him to become a part of English literature, but there he is. Anyway, uh, I'm assuming that the song Bob Dylan heard is the same one that I remember from 1955, that is, uh, the Lottie Lenya version. There are so many translators. Uh, Mother Courage, translated by Tony Kushner, David Hare. Anyway, Pirate Jenny, yes, my theme song in the 1950s. It's all about uh, this girl, this maid. Uh, she's uh, kind of a well, let's say she's a sex worker. She she uh, uh, works in a hotel or a brothel. Anyway, she dreams of doing in all her clients. And uh, <laughs> the song says, yes, I'm counting your heads as I make up the beds. Then the pirates land, the ship comes in, 
and uh, Jenny sees her clients or her uh, these dudes taken prisoner on the ship, and the pirates ask her. Uh, they ask her, "Kill him now or later?" And she says, "Right now." <laughs> Three Penny Opera breaks wicked working girls. Uh, still the theme song for my uh, my sensibility, which reminds me, do check out the Berkeley Reps production of Mother Courage, also by Brecht. Uh, the music is uh, new. Let's see now. Uh, I've lost my program for the. Uh, music here. I, I never saw Mother Courage as a musical, but I'm beginning to get the gist of it. Uh, what hit me between the eyes was a fantastic actor uh, who plays the whore Yvette here in Berkeley. Her name is Katie Barrett. Katie, I.E. Barrett. B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Apparently, she uh, conceived this role and worked on it down in the La Jolla Playhouse, but every time she came on stage, I kept seeing her as Jenny Diver in Three Penny Opera. Wow. Uh, she just knocked me out. Uh, let's see. Back in New York, there's a production of Mother Courage with Cindy Lauper playing Jenny Diver. Uh, that's a production with uh, Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein and the translation by Tony Kushner. Uh for some reason, which I, I can't imagine why, uh, Bertolt Breck is having this uh, revival. I think it's a whiff of the Weimar Republic, Germany between the wars. Yes. Berlin. Blood and myth combining once again, leaving us with songs and stories of decadence and despair. Okay, yes. Um... Through the fountain of our tears, we make our little songs and dance on and on and on and on and on. Today, I really meant to talk about Oriana Falacci. Uh, we've lost so many great women lately. Uh, uh, the hilarious Anne Richards. Uh, uh, Oriana Falacci is uh, a woman, let's see, she, she's 77. She died of lung cancer, but uh, not. I'm not sure it was lung cancer. She died of cancer. I'm trying to remember. She smoked like a fiend. I think that's why I was thinking of her lungs. But she's been battling uh, cancer for some time. And I, I read a piece of a profile about her not long ago right here on uh, this show. And I got one call uh, which uh, questioned my... <laughs> My use of this woman, she's not strictly politically correct. She's a very opinionated woman, or she was. What I was thinking last night, I was watching her on C-SPAN, talking to Charlie Rose, and he did a whole bunch of her interviews. Let's see, they went all the way back to uh, 92, 82. Um, the last one, the most recent, was in December of 2002, and she's still smoking, right. Uh, in any case, I thought of her legacy, uh, her uh, legacy as a uh, muckraking, swashbuckling, uh, opinionated journalist, 
Actually, she says she doesn't like to think of herself as a journalist. She's a writer, and she has some novels and other books out. And uh, the collection I have with me today is uh, a collection of her interviews. Uh, the Rolling Stone here calls her the greatest political interviewer of modern times. And, of course, uh, she's now uh, departed, but I wanted to compare her to... Uh, uh, Katie Couric. You remember Katie Couric, uh, the woman, uh, who has made such, uh, a big deal of uh, coming on to, uh, uh, network television. Now, I don't watch the CBS evening news anymore. I, I've tried, but, uh, there's just too many commercials and I hardly ever see network television. Uh, I watch cable and some other things, but here is Katie Couric, uh, the woman of the hour. Uh, last week, <laughs> her first, yes, her first show, Tuesday, she delivered it live from the Burning Man Festival. On Wednesday, she swooped into her anchor chair on a Peter Pan wire. Uh, on Thursday, she fashioned her voiceovers as a series of Ezra Pound-like cantos. Uh, and let's see, according to Tad Friend in in uh, the New Yorker, he says, I'd vote for Friday's show, yes, uh, as the most surprising. Katie Couric impishly read the news wearing a black burqa. A Prada burqa, but still. Okay. That's today's woman journalist, folks. Uh, <laughs> a dad friend goes on to say some unkind things, you know, about uh, uh, the fact that Katie Couric is a tense clutcher of the ceremonial pen and shuffler of ceremonial papers. Uh, turns out that she doesn't have all that much to say. Well, uh, let's face it, she doesn't write the news. She simply reads it. But... Uh, <laughs> I think that it's fascinating because the most famous story about Oriana Falaci, uh deals with not just a, well, it wasn't a burqa, I think it was a Shador. She was interviewing the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and uh, she got into an argument with him about the Shador and uh, he said to her, well, you know, you don't have to wear it, you know, uh, she was a... Uh, uh, an Italian, it wasn't necessary, it wasn't part of uh, uh, her culture. So she just tore it off. Well, he left the room and uh, uh, actually his son persuaded him to come back the next day. And uh, he uh, asked her please not to bring up the subject of the veil, the Shador. Uh, and of course she started right out with that uh, subject and finally got him laughing uh <laughs> she is strictly, yes, not PC. Uh, my favorite Oriana Falaci book is one called To a Child Never Born. And it's an argument for not bringing new life into the world. Um, I recommend it highly. Um, she is, of course, uh, of two minds, very divided mind, but she gives all the reasons why it might be better not to be born. Strangely enough, on C-SPAN last night, when she was talking to Charlie Rose, she said that life was a gift, 
and nothing could be more wonderful, more adventurous, more exciting than to live. And that her whole life was a battle between uh, life and death. Uh, of course, we know who's going to win that one. Uh, let me see. I would like to go ahead and give you just a little sketch of what Oriana uh, Falacci believes. She is definitely one of those uh, who doesn't feel right about radical Islam. Now, whether or not this stuff is politically correct, I must leave to you. Uh, I um, I recognize that she's of a different... She's not... Uh, well, she's my generation. Uh, but she has these feelings, and as uh, Lawrence Wright tells us in his book... The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and the Road to uh, 9-11, there are certain people in a certain cult uh, who believe that the answer is to, the well, believe that we must convert or die. Uh, this, of course, does not describe Islam any more than, you know, any more than Timothy McVeigh is representative of American Christian fundamentalism, blah, blah, blah. It's so difficult, this one little point, folks. I I don't know what's the matter with our brains. It's like I remember getting another one of those letters telling me that I was male bashing because I had criticized some uh, violent male behavior. And I keep saying over and over again, yes, uh, the truth is that most killers are male, but most males are not killers. For some reason or another, this just doesn't quite go down. It's just too difficult. The last book I read on the subject said that 85% of our homicides are committed by men and 15% by women. That strikes me as about the right uh, average these days. But, uh, it well, it's just too difficult for people to get their mind around uh I don't think that the men I know believe that uh, they should take uh, George Bush personally. Uh, when I think of uh, trying to think of the wickedest woman I know and why I don't feel she's my responsibility, uh, I suppose the modern Medeas or child killers, but it's just it's just this hardening of the categories, folks. Uh, I guess that as long as we have a basically patriarchal world order, that is, uh, you know, it is a man's world, uh, they're going to get criticized more than women who are not in a position to abuse power. Not yet. <laughs> yes. According, according to some of my, uh, some of my sources, they will be soon if Bill Clinton has his way and puts his wife in the, um, the White House. I was going to, uh, recommend to you, David Remnick has an exhaustive article on Bill Clinton in the current New Yorker, uh, which I, I, I think uh, you can find that one for yourself. Uh, David Remnick obviously likes Bill Clinton. Check it out. Uh, it's called The Wanderer. It's in the uh, uh, September 18th issue of the New Yorker magazine. And uh, it's all about... Bill. Uh, in any case, here is Oriana Falaci. Uh, let's see now. Uh, let's skip the bit about uh, 
Khomeini. She liked him, actually. Uh, let's skip to the bit about Islam, which is the part that upsets people. Uh, she, she too, has her hardening of the categories. But the one thing you can say about Oriana Falaci is she's not afraid to express her opinions even when they get her into trouble. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, she says, yes, without Khomeini, we would not be where we are. What a pity that when pregnant with him, his mother didn't choose to have an abortion. That's the sort of thing uh, uh, she's liable to come up with. But Okay, the article goes on to say, this is an article in the uh, June 5th New Yorker of 2006, written by Margaret Talbot, and uh, it's called The Agitator. Oriana Falaci directs her fury towards Islam. Today, Falaci believes the Western world is in danger of being engulfed by radical Islam. Since September 11, 2001, she has written three short, angry books advancing this argument. Two of them, The Rage and the Pride and The Force of Reason, have been translated into idiosyncratic English by Falaci herself. She's had a difficult relationship with uh, translators in the past. The third book, The Apocalypse, was recently published in Europe in a volume that also includes a lengthy self-interview. She writes that Muslim immigration is turning Europe into a colony of Islam, an abject place that she calls... Eurabia, which will soon end up uh, with minarets in place of bell towers, with the burqa in place of the mini skirt. Hmm. A footnote here. I think perhaps we should have a burqa in. Been saying lately, don't burn your burqas. Keep them handy. We may need them anyway. Falaci argues that Islam has always had designs on Europe, invoking the siege of Constantinople in the seventh century and the brutal incursions of the Ottoman Empire in the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, footnote here, there is a uh, famous poem uh, by Yeats, I think, called A Vision, in which we see uh, the East and West trade, trade every millennium. Uh, the West gets a millennium, we've had our millennium, and now it is time for the East, for Islam, to become... Uh, uh, ruler of <laughs> our world, yes. Anyway, let's stick to this article. Oriana Falaci contends that contemporary immigration from Muslim countries to Europe amounts to invasion, only this time with children and boats instead of troops and cannons. As Falaci sees it, the art of invading and conquering and subjugating is the only art at which the sons of Allah have always excelled. Italy, unlike America, has never been a melting pot or a mosaic of diversities glued together by a citizenship. She writes, because our cultural identity has been well-defined for thousands of years, we cannot bear a migratory wave of people who have nothing to do with us who, on the contrary, aim to absorb us. Muslim immigrants with their burqas, their shadors, their separate schools, have no desire to assimilate, she believes. 
and European leaders in their model-headed multiculturalism have made absurd accommodations to them, allowing Muslim women to be photographed for identity documents with their heads covered, looking the other way when Muslim men violate the law by taking multiple wives, or defend the abuse of women on supposedly Islamic grounds. Oh, let's see, a parenthesis here, European governments are in fact hardening on these matters. France recently deported a Muslim cleric in Lyon for advocating wife-beating and the stoning of adulterous women. Hmm. Well, good for France, yes. <laughs> I don't know, perhaps these women should be stoned, my God. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, this stuff... I, I I can't I can't keep my mind straight. I think of a Monty Python movie with all the the men, you know, uh, dressed up as women, uh, stoning uh, uh, other women. Right, you know, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Uh, John Cleese yelling uh, and the stones. Oh God, is this insanity for real? Anyway, according to Falacci, Oriana Falacci, the great journalist uh, and Italian uh, firebrand, according to Falacci, Europeans, particularly those on the political left, uh, subject people who criticize Muslim customs to a double standard. She says, she says, quote, if you speak your mind on the Vatican, on the Catholic Church, on the Pope, on the Virgin Mary or Jesus or the saints, nobody touches your right of thought and expression. But if you do the same with Islam, the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad, some son of Allah, you are called a xenophobic blasphemer who has committed an act of racial discrimination. <laughs> if you kick the ass of a Chinese or an Eskimo or a Norwegian who has hissed at you in obscenity, nothing happens. On the contrary, you get a well done, good for you. But if under the same circumstances you kick the ass of an Algerian or a Moroccan or a Nicaraguan or a Sudanese, you get lynched. Now, this rhetoric, the rhetoric of Falachi's uh, trilogy, is intentionally intemperate, frequently offensive. In her first volume, she writes that uh, Muslims... Oh, my God, breed like rats. That's a quote. In the second, she writes that this statement was a little brutal. A little brutal, but indisputably accurate. She ascribes behavior to bloodlines. Spain, she writes, has been overly acquiescent to Muslim immigrants because, quote, too many Spaniards still have the Koran in the blood, unquote. Her political views are often expressed in the language of disgust. Uh, images of soiling recur in the books. At one point in her book, The Rage and the Pride, she complains about uh, Somali Muslims leaving something unpleasant in the baptistery in Florence. Well, I'm not going to read that. Oriana, you've gone too far. There's no point in throwing, you know what, 
at people. It's just unnecessary. Oh, anyway, she goes on to write, Good heavens, they really take long shots, these sons of Allah. How could they succeed in hitting so well that target protected by... Oh, dear. Never mind. Uh, what she's saying is that um, uh, some of these guys profane the uh, uh, baptistry in Florence. Uh, I guess you can imagine how. Anyway, she describes a number of urine streaks in the Piazza San Marco in Venice and she wonders if someday they will in the Sistine Chapel. Now, these books have brought Falacci uh, <laughs> to a strange place in her life. Uh, I will note here once more, I will tell you that at the age of 77, Falacci has now died. She's had cancer for more than a decade. And uh, uh, much of the Italian intelligentsia shuns her. It is interesting. I've been comparing her with Gunter Grass, someone who is also um, out of fashion, taking it uh, from his uh, comrades. Now, he's still, he's not dead. Let's see. He would be 78 by now. Gunter Grass, uh, seems he's, um, part of the Waffen SS. Okay. The German press, too, yes, has been highly critical of Falacci. Okay. Some people, when they grow old, go out of fashion. What was it Mort Saul said once? He said, if you maintain a consistent political position, you will eventually be tried for treason. These are people who did not change with the time. Well, Gunter Grass accommodated everything to the times. He, what is it? He did not tell the truth about himself until he was nearly 80, which um, I think that bothers me more than Falacci's ability to just uh, go ahead and spit it out. Um, anyway, this piece goes on to talk about the newspapers, uh, in Italy, uh, in 2003, after she'd written those books, left-wing newspaper called her Ignorantissima. I love that word. I was using that in school once, but it didn't go across with the kids. Yes, Ignorantissima. They call her an exhibitionist posing as the Joan of Arc as the West of the West. A fashionable gallery in Milan recently showed a large portrait of Falacci. Beheaded. <laughs> After the Italian newspaper, uh, uh, Corriere della de Sara published the long article that became the rage and the pride. La Repubblica ran a reply from Umberto Eco, ECO, which did not mention Falacci by name but denounced cultural chauvinism and called for tolerance. Eco writes, We are a pluralistic society because we permit mosques to be built in our own home. We cannot give this up just because in Kabbal they put evangelical Christians in jail. If we did, we would become Taliban ourselves. Okay. This article is in the June 5th issue of the New Yorker. It's the last 
piece profile on the late great Oriana Falacci, written by Margaret Talbot, Life and Letters. Uh, once again, history happens, folks. We need to keep a clear mind. Uh, I just wish she'd been able to give up smoking. <laughs> anyway, Falacci never left her subjects unskinned. Maybe Katie Couric is a better idea. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This week on KPFA Sunday Salon, a two-hour special broadcast about September 11th. The myths, the conspiracies, and the truths as we try to be fact-based rather than faith-based in examining such questions as what happened to those buildings in New York? Why did they fall? Who was on the planes? And what happened to them? What happened to the scrambling of the United States emergency NORAD jets? How come they couldn't do anything about it? And many other questions as well. We'll try to be fact-based rather than faith-based and present scientists and experts rather than speculating theologians and displaced PhDs. That's a special on September 11th, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, this Sunday on Sunday Salon, 9 to 11 a.m. on KPFA, 94.1 FM, with me, 